Well, uh, uh, we made it. We did it. We successfully, uh, I presume, we roasted the turkey. We, we set the table. We fed the masses. We made it through Thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe, for you, like me, the turkey was beautifully delicious and juicy. And you just, you just, like the turkey that I ate, smoked for four hours, rubbed in bacon grease before it was smoked, which you know is gonna improve the juiciness. Or maybe, maybe your turkey was drier than you would have liked. That happens with turkey sometimes. Maybe the Thanksgiving dinner table conversation was drier than you would have liked. Or maybe it was juicier than you would have liked as well. I don't know. But we made it. We all managed to wake back up the next morning and shake off the turkey coma that I know for me set in pretty deep, pretty deep. It helps to have small children in your home because they guarantee no problem getting you up nice and early, even the morning after Thanksgiving. It's time to get up. But what that means, since we've completed Thanksgiving, uh, for me, I just, I, I like to wait for the Christmas tree and the Christmas lights. I like to wait till after Thanksgiving, you know? Some of the neighbors, no, no, no. Once Halloween's done, just skip straight to the Christmas decorations. But I like to wait till after Thanksgiving. And so, that, so now that Thanksgiving's done, we can, we can turn our attention to some of the other important tasks surrounding Christmas, right? Tasks such as the forming and the sharing of Christmas lists, right? Anybody here? Okay, just full disclosure. Who here has already finished all the Christmas shopping? You've already, like, is anybody, nobody? Like, two people in the first service raised their hand. Anybody here willing to admit haven't even started? Like, there's not a single, all right. Well done, you guys. Good job. Whew. What, um, maybe you've thought about this, but, but as, you know, we have this Christmas tradition, this, this tradition kind of centered around creating happiness, creating joy in the giving and receiving of gifts with people we love. Um, have you thought about the question on the screen? Have you thought about what do you want for Christmas, right? Now, for me, that question gets answered by my kids um, with, with usually lists of things that fall into the category of toy. That is, that's just a, a common theme. But for some of us, right, maybe we've moved past toys and, and all we want is just like a, 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 a reconciled relationship with a family member. Or just we want, we want joy around the home and a warm fireplace. But regardless of what it is, what do you, what do you want for Christmas? What are those desires that you found welling up, things that you hope, things that you anticipate, things that you expect, things that, what do you want for Christmas? We had some conversations with our kids and we try to have the sort of more meaningful conversations with them, but Asa, my four-year-old, there was really one thing that, uh, it's come up a bunch of times. Asa, what is it that you want this Christmas? You want to you get closer to your dad? Do you want to have a strong relationship? You want to finally stop fighting with your sister? What do you want, Asa? Dad, I want a robot dinosaur. <laughs> that is what I want. Now, his desires are a little changing because sometimes it's actually a robot snake or sometimes it's a robot cat or sometimes it's a robot dog, but robot plus animal is definitely the theme for the four-year-old boy in my house this Christmas. 
And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, I, I can easily imagine, like I see a lot of my son, or I see a lot of myself in me, I see a lot of my son in myself too, I don't know, but I see a lot of myself in my son, and I think to myself, I could imagine, like it's not hard for me to imagine being somebody who wants a robot dinosaur. Like I can remember that type of my life and I can think, man, when I was four or when I, even when, heck, when I was 10 or heck, maybe when I was 20, like I, who doesn't want a robot dinosaur? Like I, I can see that. And yet I, I searched my heart. Like I really did. I just, I went deep. I went into every corner of desire I could find in my heart. And I gotta be honest right now, today, no desire inside of me for a robot dinosaur. I just, I, 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 I can't do it. Now, a new set of wedges to improve the short game? Like, I can get behind that for my desire, but the robot dinosaur? I don't know. How hard would it be for you to think back to an earlier time of your life and identify something that at that time you really wanted but now, just not that important, not that meaningful, not that interesting to you anymore. The thing that has caused me to notice going into this Christmas season, thinking about Advent, thinking about our celebrations of the coming of God to be with us in Christ, the, the first kind of thought I want to share uh, as a starting point for considering the good news of the birth of Christ uh, is this thought. Our desires the things we want, the things we hope for, the things we anticipate, our desires change with time. When we're little kids, when we're young adults, when we have our own kids, we're coming to the last stages of our life, our desires are not consistent through each and every stage of our life, but rather we find ourselves in this strange circumstance where we want different things at different points in our life. I was thinking about Joseph and Mary. We read the Gospel of Matthew and the telling of that moment when they first found out that Mary was pregnant. They were betrothed, similar to our engagement, but probably a, a, a more, like, closer to marriage than what we call engagement. They were betrothed to be married, but not yet married. And Mary became pregnant. An unexpected pregnancy. And I found myself thinking, if I could go back to that time and place, and I could talk to Mary and Joseph right then on that day, and if I asked them, Mary and Joseph, you don't know it's Christmas yet. You don't call it that yet. That's going to come later. <laughs> but at the beginning of the story of the first Christmas, Mary and Joseph, what, what do you guys want? What are your desires? What are your hopes and expectations like, like for us, we look back and we've got 2,000 years of history kind of filling in that story and we think about Advent candles and Christmas trees and we think about the readings of Scripture, but like for them at that time and that place, what were the desires on their heart? I want to try to answer that question looking at three parts of this Matthew text that we already read this morning. Uh, I want to talk about expecting the Messiah avoiding disgrace and embracing change. I think 
The desires of Joseph and Mary can be summarized into these three categories. They, like all of Israel, were expecting and wanting the coming of Messiah. The text says that they wanted to avoid disgrace in the really complicated situation they found themselves in. And then they were invited to and ultimately chose to embrace some change. The very first uh, verse of that passage we read, verse 18, says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. For a Jewish audience, that reference to the birth of Jesus being the Messiah is the most important categorical statement of them all. The Messiah was the one whom Israel had been expecting for hundreds, if not even a thousand years. I was doing some research and I was trying to figure out what was the probable earliest reference to the Messiah in Scripture. Some people actually argue that in Genesis chapter 3, you can find sort of a, an early sort of echo of, of the early messianic expectations. But a number of people pointed to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. A lot of people point to that as the first early reference to the Messiah. The scripture doesn't have the word Messiah, but at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says to Israel... As Moses is getting ready to conclude his time of as the prophet leading Israel, here's what Moses says. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. One of the enduring desires of the people of Israel was that this reference to God sending someone like Moses, a reference which was echoed in passages from the prophet Isaiah and passages from almost every one of the prophets echoing this promise that God will send someone to make, them, make, make things right for the people of God. That desire was an enduring generation after generation desire of all the people of God in Israel. So if we're wondering about Mary and Joseph, well, they're part of the nation of Israel. And one of the first things that we can conclude they, like all their fellow Israelites want, is Israel wants God to show up this Christmas. And not just do they want that, but they have been wanting that for a long time. Think about this. Imagine you're expecting a phone call, right? But the phone call doesn't come, and you have to wait like two or three minutes. Heck, maybe you have to wait like 45 minutes till the phone call finally comes. And when you're, when you're expecting something and you want it to come, two, three, five minutes of waiting can feel like a long time. When a woman gets pregnant and they say she's expecting, they know the baby's coming, but you've got to wait months. And that's a long time to be waiting. Heck, for some things in our life, we sometimes have to wait years. I mean... We're a pretty high-paced culture, so just waiting five minutes for the cash register to open in the grocery store line can feel excruciatingly long to me sometimes, or to other people sometimes. I'm very patient all the time. <laughs> but other people. Israel has been wanting the Messiah to show up for hundreds of years. I literally can't imagine what it would be like to be Mary and Joseph or one of the Israelites living at that time 
continuing to hold this desire that's been there for generation after generation after generation. And as that desire has continued and been passed down, the clarity and the specificity of what that desire is has also grown. Moses in Deuteronomy said, a prophet like me. One of the very latest references to the hopes for the Messiah comes for a book that was actually written after the Old Testament uh, books ended, but before the New Testament books started. There was a period from about 400 BC until the middle of the first century AD during which no scriptural books were written. People often call these the 400 years of silence. The people of Israel still wrote, they still talked, they still held faith, but there were no official prophets of God. And yet during that time, they still talked about their hopes for the Messiah. One of the books that was written in that middle space is called the Psalms of Solomon. Not the Song of Solomon, the Psalms of Solomon. And in that book, we see a much fuller, more specific reference to one version of a messianic hope. Uh, The Psalm of Solomon says, See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David, for the proper time that you see God to rule over Israel your servant and undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness, to rub out the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel and to crush all their support with an iron rod. Not only did ancient Israel desire the coming of the Messiah, but as is often referenced on uh, many Advent sermons, at the time when Joseph and Mary found out they were pregnant, the nation of Israel was uh, under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And you can see from this text, as well as many others, that there was a desire not just for Messiah to come, but for Messiah to come and crush this evil empire that was holding Israel back from being the nation God wanted it to be. What did Mary and Joseph want their first Christmas? The first thing they wanted was something that Israel has wanted for a long time. They wanted Messiah to come and free them from the oppression they were suffering. But the story goes on, and we immediately go from a national level, the hope for Messiah, to a deeply personal and relational level. There's this short little, little line, and it says, Joseph wanted to divorce Mary quietly. And if we don't understand uh, some of the nuance of the, of the cultural expectations at that time, uh, we could kind of miss what's going on here. So, like I said, Joseph and Mary, they're betrothed. Now, there's some evidence to suggest that if Joseph and Mary were betrothed, and they got pregnant with each other, they could have the baby and... Maybe, like it would be frowned upon, but maybe it wouldn't be that much of a problem for them in their life. But the fact that Joseph, it's said of Joseph, he wanted to uphold the law and therefore wanted to divorce her quietly, it makes it pretty clear Joseph assumes this baby isn't his baby. And that causes the problem for him to go, ooh, what am I going to do in this complicated circumstance? 
the very next, and the next even heavier thing to realize is Joseph has his own challenging decision to make. What does he want? It says he wants to divorce Mary quietly. But divorce isn't the only option for him at that time or in that place. There's actually much more harsh options. If a woman is found to get pregnant while betrothed from a man other than the man she's betrothed to, there's some really scary, harsh things. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 22 says, She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. So it's not just that Joseph is wanting to divorce Mary quietly. Go to the next slide. But also when we think about what does Mary want this first Christmas? Mary wants to know, am I going to be safe? Am I going to live through this thing that is happening to me? Which suddenly brings one more thing clear. As Joseph is trying to untangle this, I mean, honestly, just bafflingly, challenging, complicated set of circumstances, we also find out that Joseph wants to be merciful. He's acting compassionately towards Mary, trying to avoid public disgrace. So what do Joseph and Mary want? At the beginning of the story of the first Christmas. First, some of their desires are shaped by the long history of their people. Second, some of their desires are shaped by the complicated, challenging, heavy weights of the circumstances they're living in. When you think about your own desires this Christmas, whether they show up on a Christmas list somewhere or rather they're just some sort of an ache in your heart, what are the, go to the next slide, what are the complicated circumstances coloring your desires? as we approach this Christmas? What are the things that have happened to you? What are the unanswered questions? What are the impossible decisions that you're wrestling through as you figure out, what is it that I really want this Christmas? And into the midst of what I really just, I really just can't, I mean, I can try to imagine, I have, I've tried to imagine, what were Joseph and Mary thinking? What were they feeling? What were the... As I try to imagine the weight of that, into that complexity, the voice of God speaks. Joseph, in a dream, hears an angel speaking to him, and the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. The only reason it would make sense for this angel to say, do not be afraid, is if Joseph was in fact very afraid. And I have to assume the first question Joseph would have had in his dream, if you can have questions in a dream in response to an angel who's speaking to you in a dream, if that can happen, the first question Joseph would have had is, why? I can think of a lot of reasons to be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? Here's why. Because what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was living in circumstances that were complex, 
And not just were they complex, but his desires were in competition with one another, as well as interconnected with one another. I wonder if we also find ourselves at the beginning of this Advent season looking at some complex, sometimes competing, and confusingly interconnected desires in our own hearts. And into that moment, God says, do not be afraid, for what is being born is of the Holy Spirit. What do Joseph and Mary want? Their first desire, I say, is shaped by the long history of their people. Their second complicated, heavy mix of desires is shaped by this bafflingly uh, uh, challenging set of circumstances they're, they're living in. But their third desire comes from an invitation. An invitation to embrace change. I was thinking again about, about my son Asa, and I was thinking, okay, he wants a robot dinosaur. What if instead, I said, Asa, I don't think you want a robot dinosaur. What if instead I get you a new pair of tennis shoes? No, no, better, a new pair of socks. Asa, what do you think? I'll let you know how that experiment goes. Now, why is it that Asa wants a dinosaur and maybe isn't very excited about a new pair of socks from Dad? Even if it was a very nice pair of youth smart wool socks or something like that, right? I think the answer is simple. According to Asa, he is convinced that the robot dinosaur will make him happy. And in fact, there's some good data to support that. Because if you've ever seen my four-year-old open a present that contains something he wanted, the happiness is evident on his face, and the playfulness and the laughter and the hilarity, it, 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 is, it is abundant happiness for a little while. <laughs> for a little while. See, the problem is, the very thing that makes him happy, I can almost guarantee will, days later or maybe hours later or maybe seconds later, make him angry that his sibling wants to play with it too and took it from him or some other form of... I've been thinking about this, this aspect. A lot of our desires, I think a lot of our desires, and this feels true for me, if I dig down, a lot of the things I desire, I desire them because I think they will make me happy. And so I, I started asking myself, do I want things that I really think will make me happy? Will a new set of wedges really make... I mean, I don't know. It's, I, I can have a lot of happiness on the golf course. So I stumbled across the research of a, of a Harvard psychology professor, uh, a guy named Dan Gilbert. And he spent his whole career asking this question. Are people good at desiring things, at wanting things, at choosing things for themselves, are people very good at knowing what makes them happy? That's the question that his research does. He has one of the most watched TED Talks of all time, so if you want to go watch his version of this, Daniel Gilbert. Um, try to remember the name of the TED Talk. It's not coming to me. You'll find it. And here's the ultimate conclusion. Decades of research, Gilbert has found, we are not very good at knowing what will make us happy. Or rather, we're very, very good at knowing what will make us happy for a little while. But we're really not very good at all at knowing what will make us happy in a deeper, more enduring sense of the word. 
And one of the main ways he's explored that question is saying, well, well, what is it that people think will make them happy? And his big conclusion is, the thing we think will make us happy is, if we get the thing we want, and if things go the way we want, then we're going to be happy. And if the thing we don't want happens to us, or if we don't get the thing we want, then we're not going to be happy. We think our circumstances and our stuff is what makes us happy. His research has demonstrated that time and time and time and time again. And it's also demonstrated that we consistently overestimate the impact of our circumstances on our happiness, our contentment, our joyfulness. There's this one study uh, that he referenced and that he's repeated in many different ways that it's kind of mind-blowing when I thought about it. But the study took two groups of people who at, the, at a very similar season in life had a major life-altering event happen to them. Group one, they all won the lottery in a somewhat short period of time. The hypothesis being, if circumstances will make you happy, winning the lottery, pretty good. That should be, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. The other set of people all had a traumatic injury that resulted in the permanent loss of the use of their legs for the rest of their life. And these two groups experienced these life-changing events at about the same time, and the researchers followed them for a year, interviewing them, giving them surveys, trying to empirically capture how happy they were. Turns out, year goes by, and the people who won the lottery were on average a little happier than the people who had a traumatic life-changing event. The people who won the lottery said, you know what, this is all on all a net positive experience. And the people with the traumatic event said, you know, this was all on all a net negative experience. But the shocking thing was the difference was not very much. The best, arguably the best possible circumstance and arguably one of the worst possible circumstances didn't make that much of a difference. To make it go even further, if you were to select out a number of individuals from either group, you could find people in the lottery-winning group who a year later their happiness was substantially lower than some people in the trauma group whose happiness was substantially higher. So even though the averages maybe met the expectation, the individuals that you pulled out made it say that, you know what, Gilbert's conclusion, what happens to us is not a very good predictor. It's not a very good indicator of whether or not we're going to be happy. The things that we want and hope for and desire, and we desire them because we think this is what's going to make life good, turns out the data doesn't bear that out. What does? So what does make a difference? And Gilbert's simple conclusion is it's not what happens to you. It's how we respond. I think it could be argued that Joseph and Mary had some things happening to them that in the very least were way more difficult than they wanted. It would be easy to interpret this as a very bad thing to happen to them. At that time, in that place, for that culture, when Mary found out she's pregnant and that Joseph wasn't the father, first thought, ooh, not part of the plan. This is not a good thing. And an angel comes to Joseph and says, do not be afraid, for what is conceived is of the Holy Spirit. And you know how Joseph responds? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Joseph was given a couple options. Option one, do what felt safe. Do what felt culturally appropriate or acceptable. Do what would minimize the chance of his own disgrace or his own embarrassment or whatever other things. Maybe even thinking about Mary, he could, do, he could, he could divorce her quietly and just solve this in sort of the simplest way possible. Or he could hear the voice of God saying, I get all your desires, but there's a better desire that I want to offer you. It's a desire to recognize that what's happening right now is God is coming to be with us. What do you desire this Christmas? As we consider what your move, what my move, what we're going to do this Christmas season, consider again, what are all the things we hope for, we long for, we want, whether they're the simple things like, I just want a new jacket to wear, or if it's the more heavy, weighty, beautiful things, like I want my, my family to, to stay strong in relationship. I want to reconcile with somebody I've had a broken relationship with, whatever it is. I think here's the invitation that Christ makes to us again as he does every Christmas season. This Christmas, go to the next slide. This Christmas, make your greatest desire to know God with us. We'll light the candle each Sunday of Advent, lighting another one. And this Sunday, we consider that Mary and Joseph were put into a pretty dark circumstance that would be easy to recognize as pretty hopeless. But they heard God speak a word of hope, and they chose to trust in God's light breaking in rather than despair in the darkness that they felt. How might we do that this Christmas season? I will echo what we've said already in this service, what Dave Ward preached last Sunday. One of the ways we do that is by worshiping the God, worshiping God the way God invites us to. Every time we experience joy this season, whether it's the joy of that song that you would like to listen to every day of the year, but you, with, you restrain yourself and you only listen during Christmas, right? Whether it's the joy of parties with friends and family, whether it's the joy of giving and receiving gifts, whether it's the joy of restoring some relationships that maybe have been hurting, whatever it is, any time you experience joy, let that be a reminder of the God who is with us. Or worship God with wonder. Anytime we're struck, we get our little, that catch in our breath, like, oh my goodness, the God who made us took on the form of a child. Let your wonder be a reminder of God with us. And for anything that you find yourself thankful this Christmas season, let your thankfulness be a reminder of the wonder that of all the desires we might have in our hearts, there is one desire that is better than them all, a desire to know Emmanuel, the God who is with us.
Would you guys pray with me? God, help us, I pray. Help us to take seriously this question of what we desire. What do we want? What do we hope for? What do we long for? And God, I'd ask that that whenever, whatever way you need to do work in each of our lives right now, show us if we're holding on maybe a little too tightly to some of these desires that we've got. And as we ponder the longings of our own hearts, I pray finally, God, would you just infuse us, fill us, overwhelm us with a desire that is greater than all the others, the one desire that covers over and sets the stage for everything else. God, would you give us the desire to know in all its wonder, in all its joy, in all its goodness, give us the desire to know you. The God who did not stay up in the heavens you created, but rather entered even into the most hard and humble circumstances. Give us the desire to know you, the God who in every moment is with us. Amen.